Hey, Jim. Hi. Hi, Catherine. How are you doing? I'm sorry. How am I doing? <clears throat> sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. doing I'm sorry. just I'm fine. Sorry. 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 Are you okay? I didn't mean to ask how you're doing. I'm trying to stop. Are you okay? Yeah, just a busy day. Anxious and scattered. <laughs> um, no, I'm fully focused only on this. <laughs> Great. Because if you believe it, I have some questions for you. Um, <laughs> I, I do believe it. So here's the deal. You've written this week about more about the disease. You've been learning a lot about it. You know, we keep looking for patterns in who is most affected by this and why. And it seems like the the reports that I'm seeing are just constantly changing. Like at first it was, you know, only older people. And then it was like, ah, uh, people with underlying conditions. Obviously we get it, keep getting a more nuanced understanding of it. But my question is, are there other diseases that have such a wide range of manifestations from asymptomatic to deadly? There are other diseases that can manifest in a wide variety of ways. But this one is unique in its unpredictability. So, Mm -hmm. you know, some people who have the HIV virus, um, you know, for a long time are not sick at all, um, for just one example. And then they become very sick. And we don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but it's it's a relatively predictable course mm-hmm. if left untreated whereas is here we still don't understand uh, when that is going to happen and why and it also just you know it, yeah it doesn't happen to everyone so it's a mix of things we're sort of familiar with but mm-hmm. they're combining in a way that is confusing too or not confusing but it's just a, a riddle okay so it's not what there are other diseases that have a wide range of manifestation depending on a person's like physiology and health, but this one is perplexing in various ways. Yeah. It combines all kinds of uncertainties that most diseases have only like one of these uncertainties and this one has Got it. a few. Okay. It, what was striking to me is this this period of anywhere from a few days to two weeks where you feel pretty sick, but you know, not in ways that are unfamiliar to you. Mm-hmm. And then there's just this sudden, within a matter of hours often, you can't breathe and you're hallucinating and you feel like you might die. Right. And that ha- is happening to young, healthy people. It is happening you know, more often in older, sicker people. But the question I keep getting from people is, what is happening at that point? How could – usually at that point, you're getting better. You're starting to feel better. Usually what, with other diseases? I mean, yeah. If, you, if you've had a cold or the flu before, you're familiar with this sort of arc of it where yeah. it's going to get worse for a while. You, you know, you wake up with a sore throat and you're like, oh, no, I'm getting a cold. Yeah. And then it starts to get better. And there isn't this uncertainty that as just, you know, after you're starting to feel a little better, you might just crash. And that is what everyone's asking me about right now because that uncertainty is – a huge source of fear. Right. That this might happen to you at any point. So I want to understand what's going on there and can we can we help predict it? Can we help identify it earlier so that people aren't Can just, we identify like who's going to crash and who's not? Who's going to crash? Or what are the risk factors? Right. So we're looking at those patterns right now and we we have basic ideas of that but we can't tell anyone that for 100% it's not going to. And it would be lovely to avoid. I mean, you remember hearing the story like 
Bootsy collapsed on her kitchen table and FT right. was hallucinating and thinking that her sister was there in her room, even though her sister was across the country. Right. Like an ideal medical system, people don't get to that point while they're waiting at home for medical care. You know, they could have some way to say, oh, gosh, I need to get to the hospital now and they'll take care of me and make sure I have enough oxygen so I don't start hallucinating. Um, right. So anyway, that is reason for me to be really curious about what's happening at a cellular level. Yeah. What do we know about what actually makes someone crash? Really crash. And, and That's the what? thing I'm, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. what makes the disease take that horrible turn? And that seems to be this phenomenon, which more and more people are agreeing is, <laughs> I'm trying to caveat appropriately because we still don't fully understand, but there's this phenomenon called the cytokine storm. Right. You've told me about this. And let me figure out if I've internalized it correctly. Okay. Um, it's where your immune system basically freaks out and goes into overdrive and your immune system actually kills you, not the virus. It over-responds. Right. Specifically by releasing these molecules called cytokines, mm -hmm. which are like a fire alarm, and which are telling your whole immune system, hey, you know, bring out everything you got. We have all kinds of different cells. Some of them are, are actually called killer cells. You might like that. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? They're just various different types of, you know, when you get a splinter in your foot and it gets a little inflamed, you know, there's an mm -hmm. immune reaction there. Just being like, this is something. I don't know what it is, but let's get it out. And mm -hmm. in a virus, your body's actually trying to kill the virally infected cells and not kill the not virally infected cells, which requires some precision. Mm -hmm. And this virus seems pretty stealth. Like it can sneak around your body for quite a while without setting off these alarm bells. And that's when you're feeling this sort of low-grade illness. And your mm -hmm. body's like, something's wrong, but not quite sure. And mm -hmm. then there's a tipping point where it starts to be like, oh, we know how to identify these cells now. Oh, my gosh. Wait, th these virally infected cells are, are – there's a ton of them. They're all over. They're everywhere. Yeah. Like, by the time it figures out what the problem is, the problem is already everywhere. Yeah. So your immune system is like, oh, my God. This is the working model for an mm -hmm. understanding of it's that recognition process that causes this decline. And suddenly, um, and it's not an efficient, like, measured response. Mm -hmm. So if we could detect the beginning phases of that response, people could theoretically be helped mm -hmm. to survive better. Because at that point, you're, the approach of doctors changes. Instead of encouraging your immune system to eradicate the infection, all of a sudden we are saying, we need to tamp this down. How many people who are dying from this are dying because of a this cytokine storm, this overreaction of the immune drive? Right. Well, that, that storm is part of something that causes acute respiratory failure. And it's just inflammation basically throughout the body. I mean, centered in the lungs, but it can affect all kinds of different places. There's been case reports of brain hemorrhages. There have been heart conditions. There's liver failure, kidney failure. That stuff is maybe initiated by the virus actually being in those places, but ultimately accomplished by the body attacking its own cells and not knowing kind of which ones have virus in them and which ones don't. I don't quite know, but... Things are bad, so let's just kill them all. 
Oh, so in some cases, it's like your organs start failing because your own immune system is attacking them. Right. In this sort of desperate bid to get the virus out rather than the virus attacking the organ. Exactly. I know you like the conceptual takes. Like, uh, our body (laughs) has a capacity for self-sacrifice and loss. You know, it's painful to have your toe get all swollen after you step on a nail, but we need to get this out. So we're going to endure some like swelling and pain and all that. Mm -hmm. What's a really extreme example of that? Hmm. Where the body like sacrifices something to let the whole live. Have you ever fallen through the ice while ice fishing? (laughs) Can't say I have. Have you ever shivered? Yes, pretty much every day. I'm always cold. Like, but actually shivered. Like you're shaking and your teeth are chattering. Um, yeah, I'm sure at some point. You know, that is your body detecting a fall in the core temperature that is threatening to your life. Mm-hmm. And you shiver and you burn up a ton of calories. Like it's really an energetically inefficient process, but you're doing whatever you can to actually, like using physical motion to increase temperature, which is like right. just not an efficient thing for your body to do ever. Sure. Um, if you are, say you're starving and you've fallen through the ice or you're, you're lost and you need these precious calories to continue living, but your body will be like, nope, use them all right now because um, mm-hmm. you need to keep your temperature up. So it's that kind of prioritization of limited resources to save the body, but it's not always smart. Okay. Yeah. So in the case of coronavirus and these sort of extreme crashes, the immune system is like, we know this isn't good to attack our own cells, but since we can't, since this thing is everywhere and we can't be real specific about it and it seems like we're dying, we're going to go all out. Yeah, it's kind of a fight or flight response. And that's actually Mm -hmm. some of the hormones your body releases during that period are the same ones you get during fight or flight. Mm. So the crash phenomenon is an immune reaction. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the host response as opposed to the virus is the way one doctor put it to me. Um, Got it. But, but the nice thing. <laughs> sorry. Are you ready for the hope? Yeah, always. This virus is new to us. We don't know exactly how it works. Our immune system is not. People have been studying our immune system for quite some time. There aren't new cells. There aren't new cytokines or new processes that we don't know about that are happening here. This is the hope that I've been told by immunologists. So we can kind of reverse engineer this process and identify it earlier and address it with medications that we have and help people get through it. So we can basically, we might be able to treat the immune system rather than the virus. That cytokine storm process happens in a lot of infectious diseases, and we can tamp it down. So while we're trying to figure out a a drug that kills the virus itself, which could take a very long time, doctors are finding promise in targeting those signaling molecules that send the body into crash mode and shutting them down. So I don't understand what this means still. So I understand that it's um, why this disease gets so severe is the immune's overreaction. But what implications does that have for who gets sick and why? 
and how we can help treat people so fewer people get really severely sick. Right. Your immune system functions as a reflection of your overall health. And part of that you can't change, like age and maybe some genetic predispositions. Mm -hmm. But part of it you can. So your immune system is also shaped on a more granular level over the years by your, you know, your lifestyle, by sleeping well and eating well and mm -hmm. avoiding stress and exercising. These things all have on a day-to-day -day level, small impacts on those cytokines and how hypersensitive that immune system is and how efficient mm -hmm. it is at targeting what it needs to target and not targeting what it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's part of the reason that we're advised to do all those things is you're keeping that system in balance, essentially. I think that's mm -hmm. a helpful way to think about it. Okay. You know, but not everybody can do those things, obviously right? Mm -hmm. This disease is killing people of low socioeconomic status and people in traditionally marginalized racial groups in ways mm -hmm. that are not genetic. The disease is killing the same people who are more likely to die of any disease. Mm -hmm. There are predictable lines that we draw that shape a person's overall resilience, their, the resilience of their immune system and the capacity of it to take a big hit like this at any point. You know, so if you get sick and you are at the end, of your, you've, you've already, you're just getting over another cold and you haven't been eating and you haven't been sleeping and you've been super stressed and you get hit by this virus, you are almost certainly going to have a worse experience with it than if you were top of your game. Yeah. Because your immune system's tuckered out from fighting the flu. <laughs> yeah, right. But if your immune system is tuckered out from fighting off discrimination <laughs> or um, environmental hazards or other conditions that you might have, then you will also have a harder time beating this. Is that right? Yeah. It's this groundwork that we lay throughout the course of our lives, but we still perpetuate it. Every day, you know, there are people sleeping. You probably saw this photo. Did you see that of homeless people in Las Vegas sleeping in a parking lot mm -hmm. where social distancing lines had been drawn? You know, and the hotels nearby are empty. These people who are, you know, when you're experiencing homelessness, that increases your risk of everything, but you are not in a state of great resilience. Your baseline immune functioning is going to take a hit. So if and when you do get sick, which you're likely to because you can't really social distance because you have to probably go to a shelter and soup kitchens and, and whatnot, then additionally, you are going to have worse disease and higher rates of death if indeed you even have access to care, which um, some people don't. So right. those things create real clear disparities, which we don't... I, I, I'm obviously failing to give you a really beautiful explanation of exactly what's happening in the immune system and we will figure it out eventually but we already know the risk factors we already know how to address it because we know so much about the immune system because we we see these exact same causal relationships with other diseases with cardiac disease and cancers in chicago more than half the people who have died of covid-19 are african american when we talk about questions like 
why does one 35-year-old white person with no chronic conditions have a worse experience than another 35-year-old white person with no chronic conditions? That's sort of an interesting academic question around which we could potentially one day understand exactly maybe we targeted one cytokine, we could make the process better. But at a much broader level, if we were saying, how do we prevent half of the severe disease cases from escalating? Or how do we prevent many thousands of people from dying? You know, we have answers to that. Got it. So because we know so little about the disease and the virus, it was like, well, maybe it could be a interacting with you know, something very random (laughs) in the body. And that's why some people are getting really sick and others. But now that we know that a lot of the most severe illness comes from immune responses malfunctioning, then we actually know whose immune system is vulnerable to this. And so we know who's at risk because we already know how the immune system interacts with all sorts of data that we do have. Yeah, we have real good predictors. It's not just age and chronic disease. Those read to me now as euphemisms when we are talking about another thing that should be mentioned there is wealth and stability and socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. It effectively ages you to not have stable income, to not be able to sleep at night, to not feel safe at home, uh, to not have reliable access to good food. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are things we could be addressing right now. I'm not saying, you know, we're not overnight going to turn around a lifetime of patterns that have prematurely aged a person and worn down their immune system, but we can give them the best shot they can to have a good night of sleep and be well fed and feel secure and taken care of. And then when they do get sick, at least we'd know we'd done everything we could to optimize uh, that outcome and to prevent that crash. So here's one more question, though. I mean, I understand how we can use this insight to increase our urgency to to build a better, more fair society in the future. But as far as these factors affect people's health, these problems are already endemic. Like, we can't, we're not going to fix these things uh, in time to make people less vulnerable. So... One of my other questions is just now that we know much more about how the immune system is interacting with this disease, does that offer any new ways to think about treatment? Yeah. What makes this disease so scary is the capacity to decompensate so quickly, right? And if you had a way that someone could... Decompensate? Sorry. (laughs) Decompensate. It's where your your body is... um, If you have a, a minor respiratory infection, your body might compensate by having you breathe slightly more quickly and you barely even notice and you're able to oxygenate just fine, right? Mm -hmm. But at some point, you actually start feeling short of breath. You can't compensate for that. And Mm -hmm. that's when things get scary. And if we could identify that earlier, we would be able to treat it better. That's just always the case. We can't have people... Ideally, you would not have someone like Bootsy coming in when she's already in fulminant respiratory failure with an oxygen saturation of 79. So you mm-hmm. could treat it 
by saying, okay, we're starting to see markers of this diffuse inflammatory process within your blood. You should come in right now. We're going to start tamping down your immune system. We're going to start giving you oxygen. We're going to keep a close eye on you. And you're not going to experience this shortness of breath because we're going to take care of you. And even if we can't totally prevent that crash, we could do a lot better. Mm -hmm. Half of the people who come into New York Presbyterian here in New York with COVID-19 are staying in ICU for 20 days, which is unheard of. If you could get that down to 10, that would be a major, major improvement. And if you could do it without Mm -hmm. that terrifying moment of being at home and collapsing onto your table. Right. Okay. So this basically, this insight offers a little bit of hope for better treatment. And for everyone who gets the disease and is worried that this is going to happen to them. I mean, Mm -hmm. you and I are very likely to survive this, but are you scared of getting it? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I worry about since I do live alone is if I crashed while I was alone, you know? Right. So, I mean, I'm okay. Like, I'm not, I'm not consumed with anxiety about my own health, but I, yeah, that's definitely a thing that's crossed my mind. Right. And if you go to the hospital too early, they'll say, you're fine, go home, come back. But by the time you're short of breath, like you've heard, you know, that could, you could very quickly lose touch with your sense of reality. If you're hallucinating and (laughs) do you have the faculties to even know that you need to go to the hospital? Right. So anyway, if you could be assured that you were keeping track of some objective marker that would tell you if and when this was starting to happen before you felt that way. That would be really valuable. It would be valuable to your outcome. It would be valuable to your peace of mind. And that's what I'm really right. hopeful for right now. I think we're, we're starting to identify I'm glad you're hopeful. Things. Yeah. Well, you do create a pressure for me to um, give you hope. I'm always trying to manage everyone else's emotions. Um, <laughs> a conversation cool. for another time. Mm-hmm. There's always tomorrow. Um, this show was produced today by Kevin Townsend with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. Write us with any questions that you have. Many of the things we talked about today were prompted by your questions, so keep them coming. Social distance at theatlantic.com. Okay, bye, Jim. Bye.